welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have about 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to retired orthopaedic surgeon and military medical historian Tom Scotland about surgery during the First World War. Tom spoke to me from his dugout in Aberdeen. Tom, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in surgery during the Great War? Tom, first of all, thank you very much indeed for inviting me uh, this morning. I was born in St Andrews and brought up in the East Duke of Fife. I studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh, and I spent most of my uh, professional life as an orthopaedic surgeon in Aberdeen. I first became interested in the Great War when I was a medical student, uh, when there were still many veterans about. For example, someone might be admitted with a strangulated hernia, some completely unrelated condition, and by the way, they were minus a leg or had some peculiar scar somewhere. And it transpired that they'd been wounded during the Great War. And this stimulated my interest. It also, my wife's uncle who was a regular soldier. He was in the 1st Battalion of the Royal Scots Fusiliers. He was an old contemptible. And he was killed on Ypres salient on the 1st of March 1915, when nothing of particular importance happened because there was no action on the day he was killed. So these two factors led to my interest. So let's start at the beginning of the war in 1914. If I was wounded and I was in a battalion on the Western Front, what would happen to me? Well, you would first of all be seen on on, on the no man's land by one of the 16 stretcher bearers sent out by the regimental medical officer who was in his regimental aid post close to the front line. And you would get back to the regimental aid post where first aid would be administered. Now, after that, a field ambulance would take over your management. Now, a field ambulance consisted of 10 officers and 224 men, and they would either be in a stretcher bearer division or a tent division. Now, each division was divided into three equal sections capable, theoretically, of independent action. It was the responsibility of the stretcher bearer sections to retrieve the wounded from the regimental aid post. It was the responsibility of the tent sections to establish a treatment facilities, an advanced dressing station, approximately two miles from the front line, and a main dressing station a further two miles back. So the stretcher bearers take the wounded, would take you with your wound back to the advanced dressing station where you would be triaged because wounded soldiers arriving in great numbers fell into roughly three groups. The first group had severe wounds for which there was no solution. They they would die. The second group comprised severely wounded soldiers, but their wounds were deemed survivable. And the third group would be soldiers with relatively minor wounds. 
Now, it was important to classify the wounded into the correct group. And there's a good story about Robert Graves, who was wounded later in the war, I hasten to add, in 1916 in the Somme. His wound was deemed unsurvivable after he'd been shot through the chest uh, at High Wood on the Somme. And he was put aside to die, given some morphine, put aside to die. But next morning he was still alive and he lived to tell the tale and read his own obituary in the Times when he got back to London because the commanding officer had sent word back to Graves' family and to the media that Robert Graves had bought it. So it didn't always work. Now, likely wounded soldiers would probably go back to the main dressing station. More severely wounded soldiers would go back to the Casualty Clearing Hospital. Now, the Casualty Clearing Hospital was renamed Casualty Clearing Station by 1915. And the Casualty Clearing Hospital was approximately 10 to 12 miles behind the front line. Now, the casualty clearing hospitals were always adjacent to a railhead so that patients could be could have their wounds redressed and then be sent by train to the base hospitals, stationary and general hospitals at base. Now, it's very important to appreciate that the management of the wounded was to evacuate them and to do definitive surgery at the base hospital, a journey that sometimes took two to three days. Their wounds would be uh, dressed with antiseptic dressings, and sometimes the wounds would be sutured uh, at field ambulances before they were sent back to the base. Now, this caused terrible problems because soldiers arrived at base hospitals with overwhelming infections, overwhelming pus-forming infections, pyogenic infections, and their wounds would be full of pus, and many soldiers died of sepsis. And this was always made worse if the wounds had been sutured in field ambulances before they were sent back to the base hospitals. Now, Others arrived back eh, with a condition called gas gangrene caused by the organism Clostridium perfringens. Now, this organism only thrives in the absence of oxygen. It's called anaerobic, and it was common in very contaminated, neglected wounds, especially if these wounds had been sutured in field ambulances before the soldiers were evacuated. Wounds of the thigh and wounds of the buttock were particularly susceptible to developing gas gangrene because fragments of clothing, fragments of debris from the battlefield carrying the deadly organisms picked up from the soil were driven into the depths of wounds and this predisposed to development of gas gangrene, which had developed long before the wounded ever reached the base hospitals. So the results really were catastrophic. So why was uh, the state of military surgery so poor when Britain had just fought the Anglo-South African War from 1899 to 1902, which had modern weapons like magazine rifles, machine guns and artillery? Yes, that, that is certainly true, but th there are two factors of, of great importance here. The first is that the Boer War was fought in the relatively dry grasslands of the uh, Transvaal and 
orange-free state where there were few bacteria in the soil. The Great War in France and Flanders was fought in richly manured fields where organisms for gas gangrene and for tetanus prevailed. While artillery was available in the Boer War, most wounds in the Boer War were in fact caused by a bullet. In contrast, in the Great War, most wounds were caused by shellfire. Large fragments of shell casing driving clothing, debris into the wound, ripping tissues, causing dreadful, dreadful injuries, creating the conditions for overwhelming uh, infections. The, the Boers were marksmen, good marksmen, and they fired small Boer rifle bullets from a considerable distance. And if the bullet hit non-vital tissue, then it would produce a clear punched out hole. This was very, very different from the wounds caused in the Great War with slim, uh, streamlined lead bullets of enormous muzzle velocity, which had a tendency to spin when they hit human tissue. And this spinning bullet caused massive tissue destruction. Now, the sepsis rate in the Boer War, because of the factors I've mentioned, was relatively low. It was 20% for war wound. And it was believed that if antiseptic dressings were applied to wounds, then it would prevent harmful organisms getting in. And even if infection did occur, it was believed that antiseptics would solve the problem. And because of the types of wounds seen in the Boer War, this may well have been the case. But in the Great War, the magnitude of damage was so great that, that antiseptics were ineffective. But surgeons, you see, still held on to the notion that the solution would be to stitch up wounds to prevent infection getting in, apply an antiseptic dressing in a field ambulance, transport the patient back to the base hospitals, and all would be well. But all was far from well, and this simply didn't work. So what happened if I got wounded in 1918? What advances had been made in surgery by the end of the war? There's no doubt that the greatest single advance in surgery in the Great War was a procedure called wound excision, and it had to be performed early. Wound excision means the radical removal of all dead, devitalized tissue, converting a horrible contaminated wound into a macroscopically a clean one. Now, by removing all the dead muscle and all the debris from the wound, that reduced the probability of a septic wounds. It reduced the probability of sepsis. And it also removed the conditions necessary for the development of gas gangrene. It removed the anaerobic conditions. It removed the conditions where there was no oxygen because you removed all the dead muscle, all the devitalized muscle, which allowed the organism to grow. So wound excision was the single most uh, development. And it had to be performed early. And that meant that by 1915, instead of sending soldiers back to distant base hospitals, the surgery was performed in the casualty clearing stations, uh, which could be reached in about an hour from the 
advanced dressing station. So early surgery and early wound excision. Now, wound excision applied really to all types of wound, certainly the musculoskeletal wound uh, to, to which I've been referring, but it applied to wounds of the skull and brain, and it applied to wounds of the chest. Now, in 1914, chest wounds were not dealt with surgically. It was believed, <clears throat> it was believed that if you so much as touched a lung, you would get uncontrollable hemorrhage. It was also believed that if you operated on a chest, you would need a pressure chamber. But none of this was true. The fact of the matter is that patients with chest wounds often died because of contaminated muscle, the chest wall, leading to infection. So the development of chest surgery was very, very important. Now, there are some chest wounds which were unsurvivable in the Great War. If you had damage to the heart and if you had damage to the great vessels, then you, you wouldn't survive. But many patients arrived at casualty clearing stations who were still alive two or three hours after being wounded, and they had filthy contaminated wounds, which would go on to become septic unless wound excision was performed. So early wound excision in chest wounds saved lives by preventing sepsis. It couldn't do anything about the wounds where there was damage to the heart or great vessels, but it saved lives from sepsis. Abdominal surgery also developed greatly during the war. Again, in 1914, abdominal wounds were not treated surgically. It was believed <clears throat> that if you had an abdominal wound, you would probably do better if you were left alone. This was the from the Boer War, but it simply wasn't true. The majority of penetrating abdominal wounds died. The first successful bowel reception was performed on 18th of March, 1915. Now, the surgeon's name was Owen Richards, and he operated on a Canadian Scot who had been badly wounded in a German trench, and he came back to his own front line, hanging on to his perforated protruding intestines, holding them in his hand, he wanted to die amongst his friends. Instead of which, he had a, a very early, again, emphasis on the word early, laparotomy, and he had a bowel resection. He had six feet of small bowel resected, and that was the first successful attempt at a resection of the bowel. The soldier went on to survive, his six feet of small intestine ended up in the museum of the College of Surgeons in England, and it was destroyed by Adolf Hitler in the Second World War during a bombing raid on London. So that was the, 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 the abdominal wound. So you see, by the end of the war, surgery had progressed enormously. And surgery was performed really limb life-saving surgery in casualty clearing stations before the patient was then sent back to the base. Now, 1918, of course, brought a restoration of mobile warfare. Uh, this uh, created difficulties because <clears throat> uh, by, uh, by the end of the war, rapid advances were being made. Casualty clearing stations tended to get left behind and it took longer to leave them. And the Australians uh, developed a field ambulance resuscitation teams where limb and life-saving surgery was actually performed in 
field ambulances uh, much, much closer to the front. So by 1918, you would stand a much greater chance of surviving uh, wounds of many different types as a result of the surgical developments. So were there any other advances in the, in the fields of military medicine that went on to improve the outcome for severely wounded soldiers during the war? There, there certainly were. Uh, one of the biggest killers uh, was surgical shock. Now, surgical shock was due to severe blood loss. And surgical shock was defined in 1917 as a condition of circulatory failure due to deficient entry of blood into the heart. Uh, patients in surgical shock were cold and clammy. They had a very weak and thready pulse. The heart rate was high. Pulse rate was going along at about 160, 180 a minute. Blood pressure was low and sometimes unrecordable. Now, without treatment, surgical shock becomes irreversible as a result of multiple organ failure. And patients in surgical shock are in urgent need of resuscitation. And that urgent resuscitation, quite simply, wasn't available in 1914 and 1915. Now, to give you some idea, if you arrived in, in a, a casualty a clearing station in early 1915, a, in that clinical condition, you would have a intrarectal saline to provide fluid restoration to attempt to expand your blood volume. A rubber tube was passed through the anus and saline was run in. Now, saline is absorbed by the rectum because there's a rich supply of blood vessels. So the saline went into the circulation, expanded the volume of the circulation temporarily, but then by hydrostatic pressure, it was pushed out again. So that while there was a transient improvement in condition, it very rapidly deteriorated again. Wounded were also given subcutaneous saline, which was simply putting a wide-bore needle into the soft tissues under the armpit, and saline was run in. And it was shown quite conclusively by a chap called Jeffrey Marshall, working as an anaesthetist at Casualty Clearing Station 17 near Popperinga in 1915, that this simply was completely ineffective. The saline was still sloshing around in the armpit after the soldier died. So by 1916, in the Battle of the Somme, they were using intravenous saline, putting a needle into a vein and injecting saline. Now again, there was a transient improvement in the patient's clinical condition, but for the same reason that intrarectal saline didn't work, the intravenous saline did exactly the same thing. The, while the plasma volume was expanded by the saline, it was quickly expelled as a result of hydrostatic pressure. Now, in 1916, a there was a Canadian called Lawrence Bruce Robertson, and he was working uh, at number 14 Canadian General Hospital, and he employed blood transfusion for the first time at a base hospital, and he employed it for patients who had secondary hemorrhage. Now, secondary hemorrhage is where, quite suddenly, as a result of infection, you get torrential bleeding from a wound. Uh, because a blood vessel has been destroyed, has been eaten into by the infection. So Lawrence Bruce Robertson employed a blood transfusion with good results. 
Now, by 1917, he was working in Canadian Casualty Clearing Station a number a two at dreamy siding near Potheringa, and he was using blood transfusion a, in recently wounded soldiers now lawrence bruce robertson used fresh blood <clears throat> he had a donor who was a lightly wounded soldier and the recipient who was the badly wounded man and he transfused blood by a syringe cannula technique taking blood out of the recipient and putting it into in, out of the donor and putting it into the recipient uh, and the clinical condition improved and and that resulted in a significant increased chance of survival now there was another chap called robertson a chap called oswald hope robertson and oswald hope robertson used stored blood he developed a technique of preserving the blood which could be kept for up to 26 days provided it was kept cool and he used stored blood to good effect he reckoned that in the heat of battle it would be very difficult to find a lightly wounded donor and inject it into a, a, a recipient whereas if you had stored blood you could simply take out the stored blood and reconstitute it and put it straight into the wounded soldier. Now, he used Group O blood. Group O is the universal donor. And that means that you can take Group O blood and you can put it into any individual without risk of a transfusion reaction. If you have a lightly wounded donor, uh, then you have to get a blood group for that donor and match it up with the recipient to make sure you don't get a transfusion reaction. So there were advantages to using stored blood. So that was another significant advance. Now, there's, there's actually a good story about blood transfusion. In the Kaiserschlacht, in the offensive, the 21st of March, 1918, a very badly wounded machine gun officer called Lionel Whitby was admitted to casualty clearing station number five, which was at Tancourt, some 15 miles behind the British front. He had a most appalling wound to his lower extremity. <clears throat> and the surgeon was a chap called Gordon Gordon Taylor from the Middlesex Hospital. He realized that Lionel Whitby was in a really terrible state. He was in extremis and he administered a blood transfusion. His patient's condition improved and he performed a very, very high amputation, an amputation called a hip disarticulation, where you remove the lower extremity through the hip joint. It's, it's an operation of great magnitude and Lionel Whitby would not have survived had he not had a blood transfusion. Lionel Whitby survived. He went home, he studied medicine, he eventually became Sir Lionel Whitby, Regis Professor of Medicine at the University of Cambridge, and he became Director of Blood Transfusion in the Second World War and was responsible for the administration of three quarters of a million units of blood to Allied soldiers during that conflict. So here you have 
this badly wounded young officer receiving one of the early blood transfusions and surviving and going on to do great things. So that was that. Now, the other great advance was, was really in anesthesia. Um, many, many soldiers died because they had been given an inappropriate anaesthetic. If you had a really badly wounded soldier admitted to a casualty clearing station in a state of circulatory collapse, the chances are if you gave them chloroform uh, or, or ether, then the adverse effects of these anaesthetic agents would probably result in the death of the soldier. And I've mentioned Geoffrey Marshall earlier in, in my talk. Um, Geoffrey Marshall was actually a respiratory physician, uh, but he worked as an anaesthetist uh, because of his uh, respiratory skills. In 1915, Geoffrey Marshall was really enjoying himself. He was working in a hospital barge somewhere in northern France, and there were lots of nurses from Queen Alexandra, Imperial Military Nursing Services, and the and French officers would come along with a couple of bottles of wine, and he managed to borrow a motorbike and go touring around and have quite a jolly time to himself. But then one day, Sir Anthony Bowlby, who was in charge of surgical services on the Western Front, came up in his Rolls Royce. He sought out Marshall and said, look, Marshall, we're having far too many anaesthetic deaths. I want you to come up and sort this out. So Marshall ended up in Casualty Clearing Station 17 at Rimi Siding near Poparinga, where he established the high mortality of anaesthetic agents. He established that resuscitation was of prime importance to improve the general condition of the patient. And he also discovered that the only safe anaesthetic that you could use in a severely wounded patient was nitrous oxide and oxygen, laughing gas, the, the, the same anaesthetic that used to be administered by dentists. Now, for a healthy individual, that wouldn't actually be any use. A, it wouldn't be a sufficient anaesthetic. But in a patient who has a compromised conscious level, uh, then it's a very different matter. So uh, nitrous oxide and oxygen anesthesia for severely wounded soldiers. Now, coupled with the resuscitation and advances in surgery, then that meant that the chances of a wounded soldier surviving were much greater. And, and that really reached a, a pinnacle by uh, September, October 1918, when the Australian field ambulance resuscitation teams were operating on patients very, very quickly indeed. Now, the Battle of Hamel was on the 4th of July, uh, 1918. It was a combined Australian and American offensive commanded by Lieutenant General Sir John Monash. And the Battle of Hamel commenced, I think it was about 3 a.m. Uh, and less than three hours later, severely wounded soldiers were arriving at the field ambulance resuscitation team in the main dressing station. Quite a contrast between 1914 and 1918. They were seen and assessed by two clinicians. One was experienced in anesthesia and resuscitation. The other was experienced in surgery, capable of making you know, very clear decisions about what should and needed to be done to save the life of this patient. And 
using nitrous oxide and oxygen anesthesia, using blood transfusion to resuscitate the patient, they very uh, quickly uh, were in a position to operate on severely wounded patients and save their limbs and save their lives. But what they did was wound excision early. That is the fundamental principle of war surgery, which applies every bit as much today as it did back in 1914. Now, you've done a lot of work on the contribution of Aberdeen surgeon Henry Gray. Tell me about him and what impact... Well, Henry Gray was an abrasive Aberdonian who did not suffer fools gladly. He didn't get on awfully well with some of his contemporaries, eh, particularly if, if they were establishment figures. And he went to France. He spent three and a half years in France, actually, at first in charge of a group of base hospitals in Rouen and... Subsequently, by 1917, he was consulting surgeon to Allenby's Third Army at the Battle of Arras. Now, one of his major contributions was wound excision. And he was a pioneer of wound excision. And he uh, uh, worked uh, not with, but in conjunction, he, he liaised with a young Australian surgeon called Edward Milligan. Now, Gray was working in the base hospitals in Rouen, Milligan was working in the forward area, and they both described wound excision, and they wrote their papers up, Milligan in the British Medical Journal, uh, and, and Gray in the Journal of the Royal Army Medical Corps. Milligan suffered a great deal of uh, difficulty because his commanding officer simply wouldn't allow him to operate. Milligan was working at night using anaesthetics given by himself and kept going by an orderly. And he was sort of working away doing wound excision. But his commanding officer said, no, you've got to stop doing this. You see, because he really could not, this commanding officer was very much of the uh, antiseptic dressing surgery at the base hospital, you see, and, and uh, Milligan suffered, suffered uh, greatly for this. But Henry Gray uh, was very forceful, and thankfully, Anthony Bowlby also appreciated the importance of wound excision, so wound excision became established at, at uh, casualty clearing stations. So that was his first contribution. Now, Gray became uh, one of the leading lights in uh, musculoskeletal wounds and fractures particularly fractures of the femur. Now, he fractures of the femur were really very, very severe wounds. In 1914 to 16, the mortality of a compound femur was somewhere in the order of 80%. 80% of them died. And they died because their wounds were inadequately splinted. They had a rifle splint, which was quite simply a Lee Enfield rifle strapped to the thigh and the patient was shuggled in this arrangement from no man's land through the evacuation pathway and they arrived in casualty clearing stations in surgical shock because bone end had been grinding against bone end and excessive bleeding occurred and so the patients really were exsanguinated. Now when he became consulting surgeon in the third army in 1917 he insisted on the use of a splint called the Thomas splint, which was introduced by his friend and colleague, Robert Jones. Robert Jones was director of military orthopedics. And the Thomas splint immobilized the fracture much more effectively. And every regimental aid post had 10 or so Thomas splints. And when uh, the uh, 
orderlies went out into no man's land. The stretcher bears went out into no man's land. They had Thomas splints with them. And if they came across a patient with a fracture of the femur, they'd put the splint on, effectively immobilize the fracture. That stopped the bone ends grinding against the bone ends. And then the patient would be evacuated to a designated casualty clearing station where their wound would be excised. And during the Battle of Arras, there were 1,009 cases of compound fracture of the femur. All but 5% of those patients arrived in casualty clearing stations in good clinical condition, in good clinical condition to enable the operation of wound excision to be performed. Now, that meant taking away devitalized skin, cutting away all devitalized muscle, hooking out one bone end and cleaning it up, hooking out the other bone end, cleaning it up, taking away debris, bits of shell casing, bits of clothing, bits of muck that got into the wound and converting a really filthy, contaminated wound into a clean. And patients did much better. And his amputation rate was uh, 17%. Mortality, overall mortality rate, 15.6%. Now that's the single greatest advance in the management of femoral fractures throughout their history. Now there have been many subsequent advances and further improvements, but that was the single greatest advance. Now he also established a shock centre. He established a shock centre at casualty clearing station number three at Gezancourt after the Battle of Arras. Um, because he was so involved in the management of shock and fractured femurs. And, and the shock centre was designed to um, do clinical research into shock. Uh, Oswald Hope Robertson visited the shock centre at Gezancourt and he established a small blood bank there. And an Australian called uh, Holmes Accord also uh, visited the shock centre at Gezancourt and he came back to his field ambulance uh, with the Australians, uh, having decided that he would set up a field ambulance resuscitation team. So that the, the shock centre at Gezancourt was a focus for all those interested in the management of surgical shock. Now, the day-to-day -day running of the shock centre was in the hands of a Captain Kenneth Walker, who was a great enthusiast. Uh, and, and he inspired uh, these people who came uh, to visit the centre. And, and uh, he, Kenneth Walker, used to take a couple of uh, bottles of stored blood to the front line where French raids were going. Now, I don't know if he ever did any good with his blood in the front line, but his mere presence in the front line, uh, here's this chap from the casualty clearing station with his blood, he'll resuscitate you if you come back in a shocked state. So it was a, a great source of comfort to the soldiers who were going over the top. Or so he said in his autobiography. He took a pint of blood uh, in an aeroplane from France uh, across to London where there was a shock committee set up to uh, investigate shock by the Medical Research Council. And he suggested that, that and the, the pint of blood survived the journey, and he suggested that what they really ought to do is have a blood bank and they could collect blood in the United Kingdom and King George V should donate a pint of blood to set a good example. But it never came to pass because the Kaiserschlacht, the German offensive of 1918, took over and there was no time to do it. 
that happened in a subsequent conflict. But it was Henry Gray who established the shock center. So wound excision, musculoscletal wounds, and and um, the, uh, the shock center. So one of the these really, were his achievements. One of the really interesting things about the First World War is this so-called learning curve. So how did the Army Medical Services ensure that the pioneering work of individuals was adopted, transferred, and disseminated to other health professionals so that learning became shared and standards of care improved? Uh, well, first of all, uh, all the medical developments of note were published in the prevailing medical literature in the Lancet, in the British Medical Journal. So medical officers could read uh, about all the recent developments, and they did. And then there were uh, clinical meetings. There were lectures to disseminate knowledge. All these people, all these surgeons knew one another, and they knew what work was being done. So there were always clinical meetings and lectures you know, to improve knowledge. Regimental medical officers, for example, would go along to a meeting about fractures, and then they could go and instruct their stretcher bearers in the application of a Thomas Splint, for example. And Henry Gray ran a fracture course. And the Lieutenant Colonel Carberry, who wrote the official New Zealand Medical Services History of the War, mentioned in his work that all the medical officers from the New Zealand division went along to, to Henry Gray's course. Junior doctors were taught uh, techniques and resuscitation in casualty clearing stations. And in the closing months, when the Australians used their field ambulance resuscitation teams, junior doctors were taught how to resuscitate patients there. Now, it was quite easy uh, to have some things accepted. Um, blood transfusion, for example, was easy uh, because it was so obviously uh, beneficial compared with subcutaneous or intrarectal saline or intravenous saline. I think uh, Henry Gray had more difficulty persuading surgeons of the benefits of wound excision because at the start of the war, so many surgeons were steeped in uh, the principles of antisepsis as prevention and cure of infection. And it took quite a while to overcome this mindset in some individuals. That didn't stop the wound excision being carried out, however, at casualty clearing stations, but there was still some resistance. But overall, a dissemination of knowledge by word of mouth, by meetings, by clinical meetings and, and by medical literature. It all went on. They networked, to use uh, jargon of today. What was the post-war legacy to medicine and clinical treatment of the advances made during the Great War in terms of surgery and the treatments of wounds? The principle of wound excision was established and remained the most important principle, not only in warfare, but also in civilian injuries. Wound excision is as applicable in a road traffic accident, for example, as it is in a war wound. And to neglect the principle of wound excision is to court disaster. Abdominal surgery advanced greatly. Thoracic surgery advanced greatly. There was one specialty which did not advance, and that was orthopedic surgery. While orthopedics had made huge leaps and bounds in the war, there was a considerable amount of professional jealousy and rivalry, and the general surgical establishment 
didn't want to lose the orthopedic wounds from their area, which was quite illogical because the management of orthopedics after the war went back to the hands of the general surgeons to a large extent who continued to mismanage fractures as they had done before the war. So orthopedics really was a bit disappointing in terms of progress. And it wasn't until really after the Second World War that orthopedic surgeons became established as the clinicians best capable of dealing with orthopedic injuries. But that was, that was a negative. But another positive was a plastic surgery because the Great War brought about the birth of plastic surgery. New Zealand surgeon Harold Gillies, working in Sidcup in Kent, did a great deal of work in during the war and in the years after the war on reconstruction, particularly of facial maxillary wounds, because facial maxillary wounds were very common. People would look up from a trench just to get a peep over the top and sustain some dreadful wound. And that required some fairly extensive plastic surgical reconstructive work in the form of flap surgery. So that really developed and progressed satisfactorily. But as an orthopedic surgeon, you see, I feel a bit aggrieved at the general surgical establishment for uh, preventing orthopedic surgeons uh, developing their skills after the war. But there you go. Such is life. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work on grey and other surgical matters? Well, uh, there are some books published on the subject. A friend and colleague, Steve Hayes, and I co-edited a book back in 2012 called War Surgery, 1914-18. It's published by Helion and Company. I wrote a subsequent book in 2019 called A Time to Die and A Time to Live, Disaster to Triumph, Groundbreaking Developments in Care of the Wounded on the Western Front, 1914 to 1918. That also was published by Helion. And then I wrote, I co-wrote I co a, a Henry Gray's biography with his grandniece in 2015, and that's a, a Scotland and Boye, a Henry Gray, Surgeon of the Great War, Saving Lives in a Theatre of Destruction, and that's published by uh, Caper Kelly Books in 2015 in Edinburgh. Uh, I'm not really trying to plug my stuff too much, but there really wasn't very much in the literature about the surgical uh, procedures during the war. Tom, thank you very much for your time. Is that all right? That's oh, sorry. <laughs> You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>